Hey, listeners, I wanted to share with you a podcast I've really been enjoying lately. As you might know, I'm a contributor to a wonderful journal and community called Motherscope that Jackie Leonard, who's a writer and a mother, has started a couple years ago. And I'm really enjoying her podcast. I was a guest on season one where she featured a number of mother writers and had really insightful and interesting conversations with with writers who are at the front lines of caregiving and writing. And in season two, she's taken a bit of a really fun turn and she's examining contemporary cultural artifacts, like everything from the crown to Grey's Anatomy. Some of her recent podcasts have been, for example, why the Real Housewives is the most feminist franchise on TV and the consequences of sex misrepresentations in media. So everything from seemingly light things that obviously have a bit more of a heavy hitting focus. And it's been really exciting to see the Mother Scope podcast be such a wonderful extension of the community that Jackie has built there. Stay tuned to the end of this episode to hear more from Jackie on her podcast, Mother Scope. And now back to the show. still trying to make sense of a culture of caregiving. And I wonder if this is because I come from a South Asian background, or is it because we live in a global patriarchy? I'm not sure, maybe it's both, that good mothers are necessarily good caregivers. Good mothers are the narrative, right, of the romanticized, a narrative, a dominant narrative. And I feel it's global culture, but it's certainly also part of South Asian culture. A good mother is necessarily someone who doesn't question or resist caregiving, whereas men are never socialized into that narrative. I'm Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. Every other week, I talk with artists who are also mothers and caregivers about their postpartum creative process. You can find out more about the podcast at www.postpartumproduction.com, where you can also sign up for our newsletter. Today, I'm talking with Namrata Podar, who writes fiction and nonfiction, is an editor for Coeli Journal, and teaches literature and writing at UCLA. She holds a PhD in French literature from the University of Pennsylvania, an MFA in fiction from Bennington College, and a Mellon postdoctoral fellowship in transnational cultures from UCLA. Her work has appeared in several publications, including Poets and Writers, Literary Hub, Long Reads, The Kenyan Review, and The Best Asian Short Stories. Her debut novel, Borderless, was a finalist for Feminist Press's Louise Merriweather Prize and is long-listed for the Center of Fiction's first novel prize. Hooray! In this episode, we discuss two of her works, her book Borderless, a novel about the migratory journal of Dia Mittal, an airline call center agent in Mumbai who is searching for a better life. And we also discuss the poets and writers essay she wrote titled Becoming a Mother Writer, Notes on Reconciling the Personal, the Professional, and the Political, as well as how she experiences her mothering identity as a feminist living in a patriarchal society. I'm really excited to share this conversation with you. So nice to connect today. I've been so eager to 
chat after reading your work and your essay. So as a starter, I wanted to say, first of all, thank you for writing what you wrote. I feel like what you wrote in Poets and Writers, which we'll include in the show notes so that everyone can also read the entire essay, for me, really, I don't want to say summarized, because like you said, there's no appropriate language in so many ways. And we're still writing our way into this particular moment of balancing who we are as creatives, who we are in all the facets of our identities. And I think that initial exploration that you've done in this piece, at least, I feel like hopefully will facilitate more and more conversations around the subject matter. But yeah, I'm excited to talk and I'm excited to unpack that with you and to hear about your journey because I know it's been also a really, really long journey as they all are. So to start, I would love to read just a few little pieces from your essay, actually, or just point readers to a few pieces that you talked about there as a springboard for this conversation. So there's two. One is you talk about the toolbox and the craft that a lot of male writers refer to. So just these words, right? So toolbox, craft, and you say the conditions of possibility that allow them to write. You also say, to use a homegrown analogy, the canon reads like a rhetoric of the American dream, promising citizenship within the ivory tower of literature to anyone who will work hard and master the rules of the game, aka craft. So it's another way of you know saying what you're saying about kind of who holds the keys to the kingdom and what that looks like. I'd love to hear more about how you've confronted that, I guess, in your daily life and also through your journey as a writer and a mother. And so like whether or not those have been parallel in your motherhood and your writing or just like, I think there's a lot of crossover there, I guess, is what I'm saying. And I'm curious how those have impacted you and brought you to where you are now in terms of your both your writing career and your motherhood. Yeah, thank you for that question, Caitlin, and also just sort of teasing out some of the thoughts that spoke to you in the essay. I think what we're talking about really maybe is process in the years, in the postpartum period, Mm -hmm. right? In the moments of new and early motherhood, meaning mother writers with very young children who are trying Mm -hmm. to create and be seen And that desire to be seen as a productive, someone productive, someone who's also productive. A productive maybe is such a capitalist term. I'm not even Mm -hmm. sure. Kind of fond of that word. So speaking of, I'm still trying to make sense of the whole experience, but also finding language for that whole idea of what it means. What does labor, labor again, is a word that comes from a capitalist school of thought. So once again, like I said, we're figuring these languages. But I think in that essay, Becoming a Mother Writer, I think I was just trying to name what I was going through. And I feel my son turns four in two months from now. And I'm still reflecting on that whole four years of giving birth and being able to work and giving birth to a book. My book, debut book came out in March it's relaunching in South Asia in September. In August, oh, great. September. Yeah, so it's like another birth now mm-hmm. that I'm prepping for. <laughs> so I'm still, I feel so much in the throes of these multiple births, first with a child mm-hmm. and with mm-hmm. this book and then this other launch. And I'm thinking through these questions. And I think writing that piece was making some ways navigating the alienation I felt with all these ideas of process and work and writing and kind of figuring out how do mothers make the right a time to create. I was also, we were, I mean, we are in a COVIDian 
COVID is so much here, it hasn't gotten over. But 2020, that's when I started, I think, writing that essay. You know, COVID, COVID had taken over the planet. What did isolation mean? What did quarantine mean? Just when I was about to step out of my quarantine, after the first year of motherhood, I felt like I was relegated back to this quarantine that somehow people understood much better because it became a global phenomenon. It was not restricted. Isolation or the idea of quarantine wasn't restricted to motherhood. So I think in that essay, what I was trying to navigate was so many things at the same time, right? Isolation, quarantine, postpartum productivity. What does that mean? What does labor mean in terms of caregiving? But also I had a book contract. I had to finish my book. And doing that as well and taking a break from teaching because I was trying to finish the book, but also play a caregiver in COVID, which meant I couldn't teach and have that social interaction to the degree that I was used to having. So isolation just at multiple levels. And then going back to these books of crafts by writers, because <laughs> I was looking for a pathway. How can I keep writing? So I was like, okay, maybe this is the time to go back. Oh, wow. Wow. I didn't realize that. So you were really doing that in that moment. Wow. So that's a lot that you were navigating at once in terms of what was being told to you through those types of books, I guess. Right. And I read them before years back, right? When mm -hmm. I was working more, starting out as an aspiring mm -hmm. writer and then several years passed and, you know, teaching and other things happened. But this was a time in my life again, say 10 years later, when I had a child and I was trying to navigate and figure out how can I make the time now. So I went back to these books of crafts. <laughs> and then as a mother, when I read these books of crafts, I was like, whoa, <laughs> <You know? laughs> this is such a myth. It did not feel like a myth maybe mm -hmm. 10 years mm -hmm. back when mm -hmm. I was not a mother. Once I became a mother, these books of craft just felt like I was might as well be reading books in Latin and Greek. And that was a very <laughs> different experience of consuming those and all that the writers said about making time to write suddenly I felt did not apply. All that advice did not apply to my life. And out of those questions, I think the essay and poets and writers were just trying to make sense. How can I create? And I don't think I'm still kind of figuring it out. But what the essay did was allow me to name a few things, but then also open up a community because so many mother writers reached out after that and like, okay, this is what exactly we go through. And thank you for starting, not starting. I mean, other mother writers have named it as well, but thank you for like making some kind of an effort to name this. And I felt like there was a whole community trying to find language for this experience. And I think we still are, we still are trying to find the language for it. Mm -hmm. I mean, the conditions, I found that word just really spoke to me because I know, I mean, we were talking before this, we started officially recording this podcast about what conditions, which are really privileges I have that have given me any space to write, right? Like, and these are in many ways can be exclusive of motherhood itself, right? Motherhood creates one more restraint, if you will. And so I feel like we all are navigating different restraints or different numbers of restraints. I know that I have certain restraints. I also know that I have less restraints than others, right? And so I think your essay also points to so many various restraints that we have if we're a BIPOC writer, if we're an immigrant writer, if we are a writer of certain financial means and lack thereof, if we are, you know, I mean, you can just layer and layer and layer all of those restraints. And I think that motherhood in this country in particular, as you said, is a particularly large restraint as well. And so 
you add all of those conditions, it can feel like there is no possibility. Did you find in your work when you went back to questions of craft, for example, or questions of process, were there any works that you found where you said, oh, this actually does assist me, or this does make me feel less alone, or this does actually give me the practical means to continue writing in this particular moment in my life? I think I can answer the first question better Mm -hmm. in terms of finding stories or narratives that made me feel less alone on the road. And I did mention that in the piece as well. I looked at narratives by mother writers and many mother writers have written at the same time, the ones that I came across where mother writers talk about the difficulty of caregiving and creating simultaneously on a daily basis. So many of the narratives were by white mother writers. And of course, I could relate to those for sure, because there's a shared experience of the difficulties that we navigate on the road. At the same time as a brown migrant mother, there are other layers added to my experiences. That's what I also looked, I I was seeking in those narratives. And the narratives so far that have spoken the most to me, and I think those narratives of those layered experiences, because all of us mothers bring intersectional identities to the table, and we're looking for those narratives, was Camille Dungy's book on early motherhood and history and race. So she doesn't focus exclusively on the experience of early motherhood because she's also making a larger commentary constantly on race relations in America and uh, the different histories of America. But I felt like that her experience as a middle class working mother who really struggles also with childcare and doesn't have the luxury of childcare and needs to work to help pay the bills. And also within that, the racial landscape of today's America sort of constantly navigating certain challenges in her professional life with race relations. So those kind of different layers of emotional labor, those were the ones I think, that book in particular, that spoke to me the most. And the second question, did you find narratives by mothers that offer practical tips in negotiating their writing practice on a daily basis? From most of the narratives that I've read by mother writers, I think most mother writers are still figuring this part out. And what I took, what was my takeaway from these stories was that there is no template so far. It's just sort of, you know, as cliched as the sounds, going with the flow and taking it sort of one day at a time or maybe weekly planning sort of doing weekly planning. But when you have very young children as mother writers, we need to be flexible. One of the parents, at least, if our children are lucky enough to have sort of two parents taking care of them, one of the parents needs to be flexible. And in so many, I mean, in my household, I know that my husband, who is a healthcare professional, so he has patients scheduled way in advance. If anything happens with our child, it's me who needs to drop everything and kind of go. So motherhood has been a good practical lesson, as well as the narratives by mothers, and just in living what is considered sort of cliched advice of going with the flow. And those also come, I think, even that being able to live that cliche, I think, comes with a certain set of privileges, right? We're talking about conditions of possibility. Who can just drop? Who can take a day off if your child gets sick? That as well. Yeah, no, absolutely. You had mentioned a quote from Camille Dungy where she says, the requirement of an unmolested psychic space. 
And I loved that thought because as mothers, especially as caregivers, that it's near impossible to have that both, right? The physical is one thing, but the psychic space as well. Wow. I don't know. That just really sat with me. And I was curious in your experience of, especially of the writing of this book, which I have here, Borderless, which we can talk much more about soon too, that I was curious how much of this book you had worked on in that early postpartum period or not. And I have a few questions that I'll hold for later about specific moments where I thought, oh, I wonder if she wrote this after she'd become a mother or not, because there is a lot of conversation in terms of family relationships and motherhood and children and all of that in the book. So I was curious, yeah, what you'd written before and what you'd written after and what that experience looked like specifically. Yeah, thank you for pointing out. I love that phrase as well, unmolested psychic space. I felt like that covered so much of my experience of navigating new and early motherhood, a little pre and during the pandemic. And sort of being able to having this book deadline as well, like Mm -hmm. having a contract and trying to birth a book. This book, I mean, Borderless as a novel took 17 years from the time it was conceived to the time it was done with its last round of edits, which was last year to 2021. And I gave birth late 2018. So I did write maybe 30% of the novel after I gave birth, but a good amount of like solid editing was done after I gave birth. And certainly the motherhood pieces, and you, I don't know if you sensed anger, but I have been told by readers that there was a lot of anger toward caregiving and sort of a woman's voice speaking and all those sort of emotions. Certainly, I don't think I could have written those. The mixture of emotions that probably comes in the narrative when characters talk about motherhood. It's not a romanticized experience in the book. I think it's both. I mean, it ends, the book ends in many ways on sort of the primordial mother figure in Hindu mythology. So there is that too. There is an empowering note, but there is a very ambivalent, I mean, emotional, I think, landscape to motherhood within the book and all those I could not have written until I became a mother and experienced what it is like. So those were some of the parts, but the family relations, the web of family relations, the community, so much of the book is about creating a web of a certain South Asian community, a 21st century South Asian diasporic community. Those were the characters that were always present, I feel, even in that first year when I took a sabbatical from grad school. And that's when I started writing the novel. So those characters were recurring, I would say. Wow. So the genesis of this book was 17 years ago from now or from 20, wait, I'm losing track of time, but from when it was when you finished the draft or? It started in 2004 when I took a sabbatical from my PhD program, wondering if PhD, the path of PhD and academic is for me. That's when it started. Yeah. And it ended in 2021 with the line edits, which was last year. Wow. It's so amazing. I was just thinking that like when you hold a book as a reader, that it's going to make, make me feel emotional. It feels so, it's like you're holding, I feel like I'm holding so much of your life in that obviously it's fiction. I understand that part of it, but just like what all of the moments of your life that were interwoven from the writing of this book, right? I'm not talking about the characters or their narratives, but also just the pure physical nature of you sitting down and working on this in different moments of your own journey, right? is really beautiful, actually. It's really, I think it's something that we forget as readers or even as writers, like how much we are tied to that work in a way that I think we like to think of it as like this separate 
but to me, it feels really like physical and bodily. And maybe that's, again, the motherhood piece of (laughs) this too, of feeling like that. But I don't know if that, given how long you worked on it, what was it like to finish (laughs) and to have it out in the world? I mean, (laughs) I surely felt 500 pounds lighter. This baby (laughs) felt much more heavier than my firstborn, who was like seven pounds. Um, (laughs) And 17 years. Yeah, it's, I mean, it's it's almost half my life, you know, into this book. I like how you put it that it feels corporeal bodily, right? Because maybe because we live in heteropatriarchal capitalist society, right? So much of this labor is seen as ethereal somewhere. No one, no one calls this like a corporeal bodily labor. It was a great feeling. And I felt 17 years. I often ask myself as well, why did I take this long? I did not (laughs) write the great American novel. There is no family saga, intergenerational family saga reflecting on the nation state in many ways, even if it does to a degree. But I felt like so much of it was also with the book, but also finishing the book postpartum with the experience Mm. of motherhood was so much about thinking through the forms. When I said I went back to the books of craft to figure out how to write, those didn't speak to me after I became a mother, but also the forms, forms of narrative, so many conventional forms of narrative did not speak to me once I became a mother in the sense this book, when it became a novel, the establishment was talking in my head, is this a novel? I'm like, yes, this is a novel. But the establishment in my head was like, is this a novel? Because all those assumptions of continuity and wholeness that makes a good story. All those ideas after like becoming a mother, but also with migration, also with mm. being a woman, but also a brown woman in global patriarchy, those ideas didn't speak to me. So, so much of this long journey was really thinking through questions of form and what the novel looks like for me mm-hmm. as a brown migrant woman mother writer. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I am like, if I could like add cheering, because as you were talking, I'm just like, yes, yes, I feel you so much. And I'm constantly asking for permission, like where I'm like, can I write this? And like you're saying, I'm going back to the white male masters of the literary world and saying, can I write this novel in this way? You know, like, tell me how to write it. I think we often all carry these legacies of like having to ask permission in the work that we're doing. And I think that, yeah, speaks so much, speaks heaps to what the legacy that you're carrying with you through all of, like you said, all of the identities and the intersectionality of who you are and who you are today. And I think really the work that you did in this book, for me as a reader, that questions of what the novel is, you know, all of those things, I could feel that in the book and I felt that it made it so much more richer, like rather than you having to fit the format that you felt was appropriate to write a quote unquote novel, right? Yeah. So thank you, because I don't think that I knew that about your process. And that helps me a lot to understand the book now that I have read it. In fact, there's a moment in the book and I actually don't have it. This is terrible because I was reading and I didn't, I tend to, when I take notes, write the page that it happened on, but I don't have it. But there's a part in the book, there's this repeated trope of adjust, adjust, adjust. And I really liked that. And I was curious, like, I thought it spoke to your essay, to your preoccupations. But yeah, I don't know if there's anything more for you to say about that. But it just that piece I wanted, I needed to say that that spoke to me too. 
You know, when we're writing books, and you must know this as well, when we write especially fiction more than nonfiction, I mean, nonfiction, we have a narrative already, and we're trying to give it shape in so many ways. But when you're writing fiction, and this was my first book, I was just following so much of my inner impulse, and then also the inner critic. So much of the labor was shutting down the inner critic because I was trained as a literary critic. I know some of the conventions of the literary establishment as well. So kind of that journey was on. But I didn't even know that I was writing in so many ways within the book also about mothers, mother figures and daughter figures and different kinds of mother figures. So when I was following my inner impulses, I didn't know that. But now that the book is done, now that I have readerly feedback and I read myself the book in a very different way now, I know that so much of the book is about mother figures, not just about new motherhood and early motherhood, or Shakti, who is a leitmotif that dominates the novel, the sort of primordial mother figure, but it's about stifling mother figures as well, and the legacy of stifling mother figures on other mothers to be. So this whole idea of adjust, 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 and she hears all these aunties in her Mm -hmm. head. That as well. So it's that narrative when she is navigating being a mother, but she's constantly also navigating the narratives of motherhood passed down to her by her own mother and the other mother figures in her family and how the two don't sit right in clean, neat harmony constantly. And this is something I believe most of us mothers do, speaking of other voices and legacies we internalize, right? We internalize patriarchy. But then we also internalize this other patriarchy from the mother figures in our own family as well. So those were some of the layers that came. And I feel I see them more consciously now when I can put a reader and critic's hat to my own book. I wanted to pause here and read from Borderless so you can hear this excerpt we were discussing in full. It's from the chapter Ordinary Love. All right, here it goes. As new parents, Dia and Neil had often heard from older couples in their families that the early years of marriage are rosy, rosy, rosy. True colors of a couple come out once they have a child. That's when you have to adjust, adjust, adjust. This last line, aunties recycled more often, eyeing Dia. Adjust, she told herself while locking the seatbelts around their one-year-old daughter, Taarini, in her child seat. The chapter follows Dia and Neil to a party with extended family, conversations about the challenges of marriage and parenting. The end of the chapter is especially poignant, resonating with the theme of adjust. Potter writes, Outside, the evening was turning cool and fall was surrendering to winter. As they approached their driveway in Long Beach, she noticed the leaves on some trees had changed color. Others had shed a few over the sidewalk. What had stayed intact through the changing season, though, were the rose plants in bloom, the flowers and outburst of warm colors, crimson, coral, pink, and gold, their lush thorns ready to bleed you unawares. Such evocative writing, right? All right, back to our conversation. What brings me to a question that I did have, actually, about how you've navigated both through the writing of this book and just in general, navigated different cultures of caregiving, because that does come out in the book in terms of some of the narrative. I'm curious, given the fact that you are borderless, you know, you are navigating a lot. And I was curious how you've done that and how it impacts, if at all, it impacts your writing and your daily artistic practice. 
to be very honest with you, I'm still trying to make sense of a culture of caregiving only because, and I wonder if this is because I come from a South Asian background or is it because we live in a global patriarchy? I'm not sure, maybe it's both, that good mothers are necessarily good caregivers. Good mothers are the narrative, right, of the romanticized, a narrative, a dominant narrative. And I feel it's global culture, but it's certainly also part of South Asian culture. Mm -hmm. Good mother is necessarily someone who doesn't question or resist caregiving, Mm. whereas men are never socialized into that narrative. Um, So I've had an ambivalent relationship to that, and I'm still sort of figuring that part out because I'm also a feminist. And there is a rich legacy, right, in addition to the legacy of some of the, some passed down by traditional mother figures in our communities of good mothers need to be good caregivers, as opposed to cis men who don't need to be good caregivers. There is also a rich legacy of feminists of color, including bell hooks, right, who imagined Mm -hmm. caregiving in very different ways and caregiving as an alternative, right, to the capitalist model of labor and the, the transactionality that comes with it. At my end, I think I sit somewhere in between at this point. I'm drawn to that legacy of feminism that imagines caregiving outside of a capitalist model of labor and compensation. I'm very drawn to it. At the same time, I also come from a very strong legacy of a cultural narrative of what a good mother is that I try to resist. I'm not sure I figured this part out. This is a struggle I navigate on a daily basis. I don't know if I'll ever find my stance, but I can tell you that this is a struggle on a daily basis. I just wonder, as a mother creative, how you navigate this. Is this something that you deal with as well, right? This paradox, there's this pressure constantly to be good caregivers. And then there is also beautiful reimagination by feminists of caregiving. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I feel like there's been a lot of good... I was thinking as you were speaking about Angela Garb's new book, I was thinking about Sylvia Federici and the way in which care work in general doesn't fit the capitalist model. And you've talked about that in your essay and it's been talked about, I think, thankfully in some ways, I guess the pandemic just broke that open a bit more where everyone said, oh, like the curtain was lifted. Oh, this is what caregiving looks like. You know, I think there was some, I don't know if I mentioned it on this podcast and I don't want to call out, actually know who it was. There was a famous actress that I remember early on in the pandemic said something online about, I had no idea how much teachers work. They should be paid millions or something. (laughs) I was just thinking, you didn't know that? Okay. Like, you know, as if suddenly now it's on our plates. And I think whether it's daycares, nannies, caregiver, you know, grandparents, teachers, whoever our children are in the care and the custody of at that moment, it is such important work. No, it is not compensated the way that bankers are, the way that doctors are even, which also is important work. But like, let's really unpack like, why is like, well, because it often falls on women and because we have historically been able to put that on people who don't have the means to protest that they're not getting paid, you know, they're not being compensated in the way. So let's just continue to perpetuate this. But I mean, you look at nurses, you look at elder care. I mean, right. We all know our listeners know, and you and I know, I guess on a personal level, I found that honestly, it's just made me kind of ragey. I don't think it's helped. I think I'm in more of the like 
I'm not like if you look at the stages of seven stages of mourning about I don't know I'm like kind of at the I'm in the anger stage and then obviously given everything that's happening right now um, in this country it's I think though however one thing that's helped me right now because for the last few months I've been feeling this sense of like I'm not doing enough. I need to do this. I need to do that. Whether it's activism around gun reform, whether it's activism around Roe versus Wade, whether it's, I mean, climate change. I mean, it just feels, I had this moment of just complete overwhelm or whatever. I think there's this terrible term like motherwhelm or something, right? (laughs) So I think that I took a pause and I thought, okay, there are people who work in particular ways on particular subject matters that whether they're legal activists or medical professionals, and we each have our role, I guess. And I think I was feeling drawn to, I was feeling this compulsion of like, I'm supposed to be the one, and maybe that is a motherly role or like, I'm supposed to be the one to fix all these problems, right? Or I'm supposed to be the one to be involved in this. And I was like, this is actually like taking away, even speaking of unmolested psychic space, it's taking away from my ability to be a quote unquote good mother or not even a good, I hate that term too, but like a present mother, right? Like of being really with my children in a way that's just, yeah, being present with them. And so I realized, okay, well, what do I do? Okay, well, I'm a writer, you know, and I am a mother. So how can I do those things in a way that facilitates movement on all of these issues, whether it's conversations with my children about certain things or involving my children in activism in a certain way, or like that is sort of where I'm at right now for better or worse. It's just hard. It's too hard on a daily level to, I mean, raising a child is an activism. So I hope that I'm raising at this point, three children who can in their own ways be change makers and be empathic thinkers. I don't know. It's hard. It's really, it's, it is. Um, and I think maybe with what you're sharing, and this probably is something so many of us deal with anyway, what you're sharing is between working and the idea of care and caring. Maybe the question that we ask ourselves, am I caring enough? Am I engaging enough care work? And where does that even come from? The struggle to constantly self-doubt and ask oneself the question that, am I engaging in care work enough? And I wonder, and for me, I think one of the places, once again, this comes from is internalized patriarchy that you, I, and almost all of us are constantly working maybe at undoing because capitalism is such a strong legacy of patriarchy as well. And this idea of productivity, right? Like constantly to be in that doing mode as opposed to maybe being, or is that even does that count as work, the being mode or raising activist children or just raising children in the right way without even putting a label? What kind of mm-hmm. children are we raising? Mm-hmm. Work? <laughs> I mean, the whole, I don't know, maybe what we're talking about here is imposter syndrome and the constant self-doubt and that kind of emotional labor that mothers in general, but also mother creatives, right, whose work, again, doesn't fall in those conventional molds of capitalism negotiate on a daily basis. It's certainly a big part of my life. I know this emotional labor Mm -hmm. is a big part of my everyday life. It's not surprising that again, the repeated trope in this podcast about navigating the emotional labor of motherhood, coupled with the ways in which patriarchy and capitalism impact art, arose in this enlightening conversation with Namrata. I was particularly struck by her ability to navigate this challenging junction, and also to write to the BIPOC and immigrant experiences, and to do this over the course of several decades. 
I'm also thrilled to add that her book was recently longlisted for the Center for Fiction's first novel prize. I love that her book defies elements of the traditional novel and is therefore provocatively challenging norms of literature and not only its subject matter, but also its form. Yeah, it had me thinking also about in terms of your book taking so long. And there's a quote in the book. I'm actually curious when you wrote it. It was on page 138. That one I did note. And then the character, actually, I'm not sure if it's the character saying it or if it's the narrative itself, but the quote is, fruit arrives only in its season. And speaking of productivity, speaking of product, speaking all of those questions, it just, that really spoke to me. And I thought, yeah, what if you spent 17 years or 50 years or this book never found a publisher, right? Like, is that enough? And why do we feel that? Like, where does that come from, you know? I'm curious about that quote, but I'm also curious if you remember writing it when you wrote it. <laughs> yeah, you know that I didn't read the quote or experience a quote in the context that you're sharing. It was more in the context of the story mm-hmm. that I was writing in the context of that character, a retired motel owner who's a dad who's speaking and he's sort of negotiating family relationships in a very different moment in that part of his life. And he's trying to bridge a certain bridge, right, with his daughter, and he feels like he may not have immediate results for it. That was sort of the context for that moment. But again, I mean, coming back, yeah, what do we consider as even in the context that we're talking right now of motherhood and creating or the creative life? What do we even consider and validate for ourselves as the fruit? And I feel that that to me, and I'm learning constantly to undo it, but it is an everyday, I don't think I'm there yet, but to validate for oneself, what is the fruit is so mediated by a certain Mm -hmm. capitalist worldview, because we live in this world, but certainly because we live in the USA as well, which is a hyper capitalist society. So if the book For instance, if I spent 17 years writing a book, and if it hadn't found a publisher, and it was a struggle, surely this kind of, uh, (laughs) you know, I mean, it's challenging some of the very established conventions of storytelling and gatekeeping in literature as well. So it was difficult finding a publisher, but say it hadn't found a publisher, say it was done, and it was never published. How would I experience that journey? Would it bring the same kind of validation? I honestly, to be very honest, I would love for it to bring the same kind of validation. But holding the book out on the day of publication really meant something to me. And maybe that's sort of part of that capitalist legacy, right? Where we need something that the market validates. I don't think I was thinking that ways, but it did mean something to me in a way that not holding the book it would not mean the mm-hmm. same thing, mm-hmm. if that makes sense. Yeah, no, absolutely. I've been there. <laughs> it took me a decade to write my first book. And I also more less conventional book, independent publisher. So I feel you. I mean, I felt the same struggle of desperately wanting it to find a home, I guess, because obviously, as writers, we're writing not to only for ourselves, and it has to be because we are spending so much time for it with it, but it's to be in conversation, right? Whether it's with other books, with other writers, with the legacy of X, Y, and Z. And so to have it not then be able to be at least in a format that is in conversation with those things may feel less complete, I guess. But yeah, that it also then has to sit within the particular constraints of 
the publishing industry is its own thing, right? Like they're almost separate pieces. Like you right. want it to find a space so it can be right in conversation. And yet it has to be in the book form and go through the very particular materiality of being produced in that form, right? With the cover and the bio and yeah. And it's the materiality, maybe like we're talking about like emotional labor, right? Mm -hmm. As mother writers on a daily basis. And this desire maybe for validation, it should ideally maybe not exist in an ideal world, but it's still somewhere and that materiality hold it. And I felt, okay, as writers, we get to experience that, right? As creatives, if you're fortunate enough, sometimes, you know, or often to find sort of the right home for our work, we get to experience that. But with parenting, and especially motherhood, and this is the conversation mm -hmm. I've had with so many mother friends, and I'm like, I'm putting all this labor, like, forget compensation, I'm not even thinking compensation, or that aha moment that the world had with a pandemic. But it's like to be acknowledged that this is work that we're doing, raising children, mm -hmm. right? like some kind of materiality to it in form of an acknowledgement. And that's still so invisible in our communities. And I can only speak for my community here, the South Asian community, but I safely assume that's the case for a big part of the planet. And where do we like, it's navigating that labor, and maybe that desire for validation in however small form it comes. And I'm in a place where I haven't been past that desire for some kind of validation, whether it's through, you know, that aha moment that the COVID got was one of those moments, right? Historic moments that mother writers felt or mothers in general or caregivers felt that moment. But I constantly keep wanting for more. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm curious. I'm sure there are good resources I'm thinking about, like where that the validation comes from in terms of whether it's human biology or is it called, like, what is the genesis of that, right? Is that something that we need or is it a cultural creation or not? I don't know. Maybe we'd have to look at to our fellow creatures in the world, like, like studies of chimpanzees or something where we see like, do they also need validation? Yeah, it's a really good point. I'm now I'm going to want to go down a rabbit hole of research. But yeah, so I know I don't want to, speaking of time and caregiving, and I'm appreciative of the time that you're giving to us today. I have a few roundup questions. And one is, I'm very curious what your next work is. Like, what are you working on now? I'm working on precisely what we're talking about, naming all the things that we're trying to name in this conversation and negotiate a certain emotional landscape on a daily basis. I'm writing about motherhood right now and books have a mind of their own. They have a clock of their own. I don't know what next comes with it, but that's where I am in my free time. You know, in addition to book birthing, I'm so much right now in the throes of book birthing and teaching, but on the side, I'm working on motherhood early motherhood, new to early motherhood. Is it fiction or nonfiction? This one is nonfiction. Hmm. Very cool. Well, I'm excited to see where it takes you. I'm excited about the journey as well. On this podcast, I round out the interview with a few questions and one, if you could, really putting you on the spot, but to define two subject matters to me. And I realized actually, maybe I shouldn't point this out for listeners. I've been mixing it up a little bit. So I'm going to ask two questions. One is what is postpartum? And the second is what is productivity? In some of the podcasts, I've asked what is postpartum and what is creativity, but I think I want to focus, especially given this conversation on how you define productivity, because that's come up a lot here. So Ooh, 
Yeah, <laughs> well, both not easy questions. I'll start with the second productivity. You know, that word is to me so much a legacy of heteropatriarchal capitalism. So I, you know, um, I'm not sure I have a very loving relationship with that word. In the U.S., especially, this word seems particularly popular as well. So I would say for myself, productivity is self-validation, where one finds like validation. Okay, I did. I created something today. You know, I did this. To me, that is outside of that capitalist model. Whatever I validate for myself at the end of the day, that is productivity to me as of now, although I have to share this with the caveat that I'm not too fond of that word, but I would define it that way for myself. And then postpartum. Well, I think in theoretical terms, I think postpartum implies a certain time period, like it's defined by temporality. I would think six weeks after birth, or maybe even three months, some call it the fourth trimester. Right, the three months after birth, when a mother is sort of healing in her body, but also transitioning to this new experience of parenting. So that's maybe at a theoretical level, emotional level for me, postpartum, I'm still in the postpartum period. I don't know. My clock, I'm not seeing end so far to it. My son turns four soon. So to me, it's more of an emotional experience. It's more of an existential experience where I am right now with a young child. Postpartum to me is just life after childbirth. When I look at myself as a person or my identity before childbirth, that's one person in many ways. We are always evolving in our identities. I mean, being is such a dynamic thing to even talk about. But I would say if I had to impose sort of a clock on my life, it would be pre-childbirth and post-childbirth. So I'm still in that postpartum experience. Yeah, so theoretically, maybe like a condensed temporal framework, but... Mm -hmm. For myself, it's more temporal, maybe. I think it will end once my son is a little older. I don't know how old, but I do see it ending before maybe. Maybe in his <laughs> pre-teens. I don't know. You tell me, Caitlin, you have older children and, you know, more than one. Emotionally, um, <laughs> like maybe forever. <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I mean, that's why I chose the title of the podcast, because I feel like there are terms that get thrown out there. There, get, there are terms that get like thrown on you in a way, right? Like as a woman, as a mother, as an American, right? Like when you're talking about productivity, production, like, and I just, they're terms that I bristle at a little bit. So that was why I chose them, even though being a little bit provocative, I guess. But yeah, I just appreciate your honesty and your willingness to attempt your own reframing of these terms of how we live and write and breathe and caregive in this world. And I really appreciate it. I'm excited that that's something that you're still going to be digging in on in future work. And I hope that a lot of the threads and the impetus for the essay are reflected in the work that you will be continuing to work on. So even work, right? I keep saying that word work and like our work as writers. It's another one. But yeah, so thank you so much. And we will include links to everything in the show notes and share with listeners ways to access your book and the essay and anything else that we can share in terms of the universe of your writing world. Yeah, thanks for being with me today. It felt like we covered a lot in this conversation, as always. But what struck me in this conversation with Nemrata is not just that we are mothers, but that the role affects us in this capitalist society which increasingly puts pressure on mothers to perform as quote-unquote good 
without remuneration for the hard work that is mothering. Personally, I bristle whenever I hear the words good and bad used to describe people, especially when all of us are working within certain systemic constraints, some with massively more baked in privileges and support than others. I want to hear from you if this conversation about good mothers and the inheritance of narratives of motherhood resonated with you. Reach out to me at hello at postpartumproduction.com. And please also check out Namrata's essay linked in the show notes over at postpartumproduction.com. Buy her book, Borderless, which is available everywhere books are sold. My personal favorites are your local bookstore, your library, and also bookshop.org. And follow her on Twitter at Podar underscore Namrata and on Instagram at Writer Podar, and that's Writer P-O-D-D-A-R. I'm your host, Caitlin Salamini, and this is the Postpartum Production Podcast. If you like what you've heard, please subscribe wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating. This will help us reach more listeners like you who are navigating the joys and pitfalls of artistic and parenting identities. For regular updates, visit our website, postpartumproduction.com, follow us on Instagram at Postpartum Production Podcast, and subscribe to our podcast newsletter on Substack. Thank you for listening, and we are so grateful to have you with us on this journey. Postpartum may feel like forever, and sometimes it may feel very lonely, but you're not alone here. Hello, Postpartum Production Podcast listener. My name is Jackie Leonard, and I'm the founder of Motherscope, a publication and community for moms who write. I'm here right now to share a little bit more about my own podcast, the Motherscope Podcast, and invite you to listen to it if it sounds interesting to you. The podcast is currently in its second season, and this season I'm tackling the topic of mom guilt and guilty pleasures. Each episode of the podcast is a deep dive into the way motherhood is and is not represented in pop culture, trends, and our favorite forms of entertainment. This season has had episodes on Disney movies, The Handmaid's Tale, The Real Housewives franchise, Jurassic Park, and more. If this piqued your interest, be sure to listen to the Mothersco podcast.